This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts Podcast with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Hey everyone, new episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Little known fact about my guest today. His real name was changed to just his initials to keep the audience in suspense during his Tony Award-winning turn as a female opera diva spy in M. Butterfly. He never went back to his original name. Welcome humanitarian actor and friend, Gotham's Hugo Strange, a.k.a. B.D. Wong. A-okay. start at the very beginning. So tell me what it was like to grow up in San Francisco. I'm always really proud to uh, say that I'm from San Francisco and to get into that because I do think, looking back on it, that um, it was a really rich and lucky place to grow up. It was lucky to grow up there Asian American and was lucky to grow up there gay. Um, and lots of gay people who live in other places and lots of Asian American people who live in other places have completely different childhoods than I did because it's a really diverse and uh, gay friendly and, and there's a, you know, a really strong Asian American community in San Francisco. So those identities within me um, were as strong as they could be. There were still lots of challenges related to them because they were both kind of at cross purposes with my aspiration to be an actor. So when did you know you wanted to be an actor and when did you know you were gay? Well, this is interesting that you just said the gay part because I remember very distinctly having gay feelings at like five or six from watching Batman. And um, that's my very powerful memory. And so, of course, now I'm on Gotham, and I never really made that connection, but all roads lead to Batman, I guess. Was that the only superhero that you were attracted to? Yeah, because I wasn't into comics. I was into television, and that those guys in tights were on television, and there was all this kind of it's a little kinky, but there was a lot of like, you know, Batman and Robin and Batman was always saving Robin totally. and Robin was tied up and wearing tights and oh stuff God. like that. I don't, you know, I have no idea. I'm really not making any uh, hypothesis about what any of that means or anything. But as a kid, I was really, really turned on by that. 
I mean, not all, not not specifically Robin being tied up, but just their relationship. And, well, I want to say, as an and, adult, I'm really turned on by you talking about it. So it's well, working it, it, for it, it, everybody. Yes. Okay, great. Okay, so that was kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, but they were um, not just that. They were people. They were, you know, it was a whole thing. It was them, the way they were dressed and stuff. It, it, you know, well, you know, it's no secret. Lots of gay guys have a thing about superheroes. Why wouldn't they? And so that was the superhero imagery that was available to me then. So so growing up in San Francisco, though, I, I, I discovered music when I was in elementary school. Yeah, okay. I started singing in the chorus, and I loved that very much. And the one thing I really remember is that I felt that it was the first thing I'd ever done that – how do I describe it? It, it 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 was giving something back to me on all this on these different levels. I had this teacher who really saw me, and she identified immediately. I think she was happy that she had this new kid that was like so enthusiastic in her midst. But she was also really keenly aware that there was a potential or something like mm-hmm. that. I'd never done it before, and I remember. And the the, the her favorite actor in the program was a kid who was my age but had started acting earlier so he got to be Nathan Detroit right and his name was Bob Cooper and he's one of my great friends from high school to this day I just spoke to him yesterday and I remember she was walking down the hallway at the side of the auditorium and she said next year Bob Cooper and you in the odd couple (gasps) and I got I was like what I don't know what she's talking about I mean I knew what the odd couple was but I thought she would say that why would you say that and uh, we never did the odd couple. Why? I don't remember why. But Dang. it didn't matter because Bob Cooper was the mayor and, and the music man, and I was the music man. And then Bob Cooper was J.B. Bigley and How to Succeed, and I was um, J. Pierpont Finch. And the next play she did instead of the odd couple was she did The Matchmaker. And Bob Cooper was Vandergelder, and I was Barnaby Tucker. Sorry, for some reason I got <laughs> it confused, and I was picturing you as Helen Keller. But that's a completely—I don't no, know what play. That's the miracle <laughs> worker, miracle Alana. But okay. that—have you ever thought about playing Helen Keller? Um, no, but it's too close to home. <laughs> Did you fall in love at that time in your life with a person? Uh huh. No, you know, I—I I mean, really, this is corny as heck, but I fell in love with what I was doing. Uh-huh. To the point of distraction, to the point of obsession. This is all complicated by the fact that at the time, there weren't a lot of Asian people on TV. Mm-hmm. So I was really confused, you know, because I started to think, well, maybe I would really want to do it. Right. And then I was immediately pulled myself back because I thought, oh, well, there's just – that does – I don't understand where how I would I fit, fit into in? this yeah, thing. where would the opportunities yeah. be? I dragged all my friends to this tryout for a community theater show. And they were doing – Anything goes. We all audition for like a whole week. And then at the end of the week, the guy gets up on the stage with a clipboard and reads the cast list to everybody. Very community. It was a very quirky St. Clair. He gets up on the stage and he reads my name at the bottom of the Anything Goes cast list with the names of one of those two Cooley characters. Okay, these two Chinese guys that come on at the very end. They're a plot device. And they're built on this old school kind of like Chinese guys who don't speak, who speak broken English, right. who don't understand what's going on to them. And and he said my name and I was like, what? I, I really, it was a real racial disconnect moment 
where I said, why would somebody give me this part? I mean, it was almost like I didn't know I was Asian, even right. though, of course, I knew I was Asian. Right. I was like, well, yeah, but I'm not that kind of person. I'm this kind of person. Like, I'm the dancing sailor kind of person. And trust me, I was full-on dancing sailor. You know, I was really into – it was a waste of of actually my talent of course. In, in the reality of the world. But, right. of course, it made total sense to this um, this director. And he gave me this part, and I and I was confused and really hurt by it. My feelings were really hurt because I was really stigmatizing that image of that person. I didn't want to be that person. I right. was a um, an American kid going uh, with Chinese parents who whose my parents were really of real dual kind of identity. They, they grew up in Chinatown. They spoke Chinese in 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 their houses, and then in the daytime or whatever they went to public schools and wore bobby socks and they played basketball and i have a, a connection really do have a connection from my parents to the culture and through my family i have a really close-knit large family on my mother's side but i the language i don't i don't have so at some point you made the decision to leave san francisco yes i saved all this money and i came to new york and uh, that was super scary and my parents were they were supportive they were they were not they were definitely not saying don't do this but they were really concerned they so were really nervous this? help me help me it's, figure out where we are in it's time 1981 to 1981 yeah and then i came to new york and they and I, I came with their kind of scared blessing so between 1981 and was m butterfly in 88 m m butterfly i was cast in m butterfly in 87 okay and what what I did was I got my cards and I started working and I was doing like like chorus work and musicals and dinner theater and and stuff like that and then I got the national uh, where the San Francisco the West Coast Company of La Caja Fall and I was in the chorus of that and that was in 1984 and I went to both San Francisco my hometown which was incredible incredible because we we played at the theater where I was an usher when I was in high school That's and amazing. all the same people were still ushers there and they were the ones who threw me a party and bought me a cake when they said I was going to New York and there was a lot of eye rolling and then we went to Los Angeles and we we played in Los Angeles for six months and at the end of that I decided to stay in Los Angeles and then I started working in television and film and I got a lot of bit parts on in in guest starring bit parts and and stuff in movies and, and TV and I was making a living, but I was doing a lot of kind of rehashed stereotypes and stuff like that. When was Father of the Bride? Father of the Bride was the wave of movies that I did in the 90s came from M. Butterfly. Okay. And so this is just pre-M. Butterfly. So when you look back at Father of the Bride, Uh how do you feel about that character? I really have affection for him. When I took the part, I was struggling a little bit with the whole kind of gay stereotype thing. And I was struggling with... Um, Can I, I just want to tell our listeners, in uh-huh. case they're not familiar with the film, that Martin Short plays this extravagant, over-the-top wedding planner, event mm-hmm. planner. With an odd foreign accent. With an odd foreign accent. Hilarious. Hilarious. Can't tell where he's from, really. Yeah. Um, and you play his assistant. Yes. They wrote the part for a, a, an old Jewish guy. And then I they did, and yeah. then you came in, and, and they I were came like, in and just well, I'm just going to do an old Jewish guy because I don't want to do an old Chinese guy. That would be 
gross. I don't want to do that. And and I think it can work. And they, they thought it was hilarious. And so they kept it. And then I said, well, you shouldn't change his name either. And they didn't. His name is Howard Weinstein. <laughs> And um, What were you even doing at an audition for Howard Weinstein to begin with? I don't know how I got this audition. It was from one of those other eccentric parts that I'd played in other things. I was in The Freshman, and in The Freshman, I, I was a Chinese person, but I was so weird and and odd and kind of unexpected or something like that that they liked it. Was Marlon it. Brando around when you oh, yeah. worked? Mm-hmm. Do you have any Marlon Brando stories? Marlon Brando was... The only person I've ever worked with who um, you had to wait a long time for. Like, clearly the shot was done and everyone's just waiting. Uh And they're all kind of busying themselves. And then he he comes in and it gets completely silent in a way that's noticeable. Like, all of a sudden, nobody even wants to talk at all. He's here. Yeah. And they're kind of whispering or whatever. It's the same way that people get when you're doing a really hard scene, like when you're doing like an emotional scene. It's like, okay, we'll give him let's what lock he it needs. up, everybody. Yeah, you know? yeah. And he was very friendly and he was very odd and off the wall. And I remember there was a scene, we were in a kitchen and there was all this um, cutlery and he said, hey, do you know how to sharpen a knife? And I said, no, I don't think I do. And he said, let me show you how to sharpen a knife. And he took a knife and he took the stone, the whetstone or the that rod, whatever you call that rod, the knife sharpening thing. And he was like, you do this and he, you know, this thing protects your finger and this – you do this. And he just showed me how to do it. Now I I do think about that when I sharpen knives for, for whatever it's worth. I'm going to think about him too. Yes. I'll show you how to Thank do it. Thank you. Okay. I'm so excited. And um, that, I don't have many stories about him but he was pretty odd. And and everyone was actually saying, and I guess I didn't. I went through this whole kind of clueless period, uh, rather self-involved, I think, right. period where I has I, that stopped. Do you feel like that? I, stopped? I do feel like it stopped. Okay, good. And <laughs> just checking. Um, <laughs> I just want you to notice where the periscope camera is. Yes, but go I'm, on. I am. I'm looking right at it right now. <laughs> um, but the thing is that um, this during this period, I didn't really get. What, what it meant to be in a movie with Marlon Brando. And everyone's saying, oh, my God, you're in a movie with Marlon Brando. And did, did he talk to you? And I was like, I don't, you know, no, he didn't say very much. And I wasn't there. And it was in a good way. I wasn't, like, acting weird around right, him. because you intimidated. I wasn't. And, and, and I realized now that happened to me many times. I remember Bob Cooper, the guy who was Vandergelder, just told me yesterday how funny he thought it was and ridiculous and crazy and unbelievable that I was getting strangled by Sean Connery in the back of a car in this other movie, um, Family Business. And I didn't think about that at all. What if it had been Liza? Well, I mean, that's completely different. (laughs) If Liza had been strangling you in the back of a car, you would have paid attention. Yeah, I would have let her. I would probably would have let her. Ms. Minnelli, a little harder. Anyway. And I'm perfectly happy with my career in its totality. I have no complaints about that. But if you really want – if you really ask me about what I really want or and whether I've gotten it, I would say, as like many actors, oh, no, there's much more than I would really want. Was there ever a time when you really wanted to give up? There are times of great doubt or of great frustration. I was on Law and Order SVU for eleven seasons. They were life changing seasons. They they that was a life changing period of time. One, it was me 
deciding that I was going to live in New York. And Jackson was just born and I got this contract right after Jackson was born and I said, I'm taking this contract. Um, this is the dream job. And I'll, five years into it, I, was, I, I, I found myself really um, challenged by the sameness of it. It was always the same every week. It was always – my function was almost always the same. I was always coming in and they were always asking me questions right. and I was the always saying this. It was really procedural. procedural. Show, right? Yeah. And the fans are, have been great. They love it. They're so passionate about my work on that show, which is really great. And I'm, I, I often – so close to becoming that kind of jaded actor that's like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, that's not – that's not what I do kind of thing. So halfway through it, I started to really doubt um, that I was in the right place. And for the second half of the whole thing, I constantly wanted to figure out something else to do. But as you know, the contract and the situation I was in was undeniably – you know, you'd be an idiot to well, to give it up. Financial security. Yeah, financial security, and uh, let's just say there were bills to pay. I mean, and 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 I also halfway through it made a deal with the uh, with um, Law and Order that I could do other things, and that they they let me they they wouldn't write around me, but like I did a play um, in uh, La Jolla and in in at the McCarter, and I did I did several plays actually. Did you feel any pride in the fact that that character toward the end ended up being revealed as a gay character? No. Tell I, me why. Because it was 11, 10, 11 years into it and I thought, you're kidding me. Oh, now? I've been now? playing this part for um, 10 years now and nobody ever said he was gay. That's that's pertinent information about somebody if you really care about what they... they're about. It was an add-on. And I remember them saying, isn't this great? Isn't this great? And I was like, and first of all, why is it great? Because I'm gay? That's really not interesting to me. Maybe they thought it was great because the more gay characters there are on popular television shows, the more at peace people might become with that. Well, that Maybe. That is true. That's the greatest no, that, That's absolutely hope, true. Right? That's no, I mean, nothing I'm saying takes away from that. That's right. absolutely true. In my particular scenario, I played the part for 10 years, and then right before I'm about to leave, it just gets casually mentioned mm-hmm. in a really, to me, non-impactful way. Right. Do you have a really embarrassing audition story that you can share? One of the parts that kept coming up when I was in the 80s, when I was in L.A., was the part of this um, sensitive, troubled um, Chinese gang member, teenage gang member. So I was always getting the part of the the nice one, you know, the one that the police would come and talk to and I would tell them that the girl was taken to this place and then the plot would shift because I ratted on them. But I was like the nice one. I was not like all, well, you know, I was like not all street and stuff. And as we said before, I don't speak Chinese. So I was often asked to speak Chinese for these auditions. And this is a whole thing for actors who are Asian American is the, is the whole idea of spe- either speaking with an accent or speaking in a certain language. And this is a really dramatic story because the girl was my sister, I think. And the girl was had been abducted by my own gang or, or something like that. That's terrible. Yes. Your own sister my own, kidnapped oh yes, yeah. by your own gang. It's yeah. terrible. 
That's right. And I'm acting the hell out of it because it's like this big breakdown scene where I finally agree to say where she is. And um, and I, I'm, I'm afraid because I don't speak Chinese that I don't remember what the Chinese words were. But the Chinese words were the, – the, the lines were something like, um, this is where she is. She's – and then dot, dot, dot. Doesn't want to say it, doesn't want to say it, doesn't want to say it, finally says at the warehouse. And I had diligently, as I always do, learned the Chinese from somebody. But I'm sitting there at the end and I get I'm to the I'm so nervous. I get to the ellipsis <laughs> and I'm speaking in Chinese and I'm acting the heck out of it. And I get to the ellipsis and then I am completely dry I go completely dry like I forget the Chinese for the, she's in the, the warehouse. warehouse she's in the warehouse and I'm blanking completely and there's a long pause and then I just say shut the window in Chinese because that's what I know how to say okay. shut the window but nothing like nothing the like warehouse. she's in the warehouse <laughs> no, I'm so and sorry. what happened was this sense of letting down a whole, the whole race of people. You did. and uh, Or nationality of people. Yes. And my sense of shame about the whole, um, the whole notion of being a non-Chinese speaking Chinese person, which is a guilt trip that gets laid on you. You know, it's like not being bar mitzvahed. And, and Ch older Chinese people can be really rather hard on you about it. You know, like, oh, shame on you. They will say, shame on you. Oh, you don't speak Chinese, shame on you. You don't speak Chinese? Uh, I you. can say, open the window. Yes, exactly. Hello. The epilogue of the story is that I said, shut the window. And I'm having this whole thing where I'm looking down at my hands or at the table or whatever, and I... And as she's in the warehouse is the last line of the scene. And I look up and everybody's crying and shaking their heads. That was so oh, beautiful, that was so beautiful. Thank you. That was so beautiful. Thank you. And, and All right. Well, I'm I can do assure it. you, I, yeah. when you did it, I know that you said it properly. Yes. In the right Chinese. When it actually shot. When it actually shot. Yeah. And, and you did your people proud. I can assure you. Thank you. By saying really, that's truly one of the saddest stories. <laughs> I didn't want to be Chinese, American, Asian American, and I didn't want to be gay. Those are impediments, were impediments to me. Those were like, oh, I can't be Matthew Broderick if I'm those two things. Neither well, of those two things. He is totally Chinese and gay. <laughs> so first of all. Exactly. But he was the, for me at the totally time, my, the model. generation, of yeah. course. And 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 I I tell them all at the college if I could have if somebody uh, would have given me one hundred fifty thousand dollars I would have had an operation you know to try to change myself hmm. to turn myself into either, you know not you know if there was such a thing as an operation could right. even do right. I would have done it because I felt that way about so strongly about what I wanted to do and so strongly about how clearly panicked I was that I wasn't these things. Well, thank God. You didn't. Yes. Thank God you didn't. Yeah, yeah. Um, and now you have a son. And now I have a son. And processing all of this is really interesting thinking about him because he has no none of the 
same thing that I had. Yeah. And it's clear when I talk to him and when he when he talks about things that he's he's kind of a what's the big deal about that kind of guy in certain in certain ways. First of all, my son has gay parents. Mm-hmm. So you realize that the lens that he sees the world through is through the lens of having gay parents. So, of course, there's nothing wrong with having gay parents at that point. So there's no, like, it's not a big deal for anybody to have, for any gay people that he sees around him to have kids. It's not a big deal. Why would it be? And that is very reassuring and and heartwarming. There's one thing that I wanted to do before we leave, and I want to see if we can get it right right now. No. Okay? Are you ready? Come uh, first on. of all, I'm going to say I know what it is, and you, you didn't even tell me what this was going to be before, but you're not going to get it right. Okay. Okay. You, you start. It's uh-uh. having a sister. You start. Okay. Well, no, wait a second. Happiness uh, is No, that's not the right key. Having a sister. Sharing a sandwich. Getting along. Getting along. (laughs) Okay, you want to do it one more time? You start. Get in the right key. Happiness is having a sister. Sharing a sandwich. Getting getting along. (laughs) How many performances do we do? Getting along. Happiness is being alone every now. This, the whole reason for this whole podcast is so you can be doing this. And I'm happiness tell- is coming home again. Thank you, VD Wan. This was the best seven hours of my life. <laughs> I'm Alana Levine. Thank you for listening. Please don't forget to rate and review our show in the iTunes show page. Little Known Facts is recorded at the Hangar Studios in New York City.